Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of a brand new season of Intimate Animation, or series. I'm not sure if it's season or series when it comes to podcasts. I feel like it should be series, because season would determine that we'd at least waited until fully spring. I feel like it was... When did we stop the last series? Well, I don't know. I think since, like, Netflix, everything's gone out the f***ing window. Oh, yeah. Actually, since HBO, like, they would put on a series of a show, like, once every two or three years. If And, you know, you'd get new episodes when they felt like it. That's the uh, agenda we're going into this podcast with. <laughs> Just be glad you get to hear it at all. Uh, we've missed you, too. Uh, I'm Ben Mitchell. I'm joined by my podcasting companion, Laura Beth Cowley. Laura, how are you? Hello, I'm good. I'm well rested. I've just finished my own film, so I'm doing nothing. Oh yes, we've. Uh, there's lots has happened since the last series concluded. Hasn't been that long, but yeah, it's been a very busy few months, especially for you. You did a film. You've been doing lots of work here and there. One thing that always makes me smile is uh, those DFS ads keep coming oh, yeah. on the TV, and you help <laughs> oh, make yeah, those that. puppets. <laughs> I forgot about that. Was that bef- when did we stop doing this podcast? Was it just before Christmas? I think you'd done it, but the ads hadn't started airing yet. Yeah. Who was the director on this? Uh, Steve Harding Hill. Ah, yes. So there you go. You already f- beat me to Wadman. <laughs> <laughs> In like under six months. Moved here ten f- years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I work in stop motion, so I have to grab it whilst it's happening. Well, you're also immensely more likable. I will, <laughs> I will vouch for that. Yeah, true. But yeah, that's very cool. And I like this. I know they're meant to be based on real people who work at DFS, but they actually just really look like animators I know. Like, I've assigned an animator in my life for each puppet. Well, the, each puppet. the slightly curvier girl... Okay. Um, shall I say? My dad was like, oh, did you get to make yourself? <laughs> I was like, thanks, dad. <laughs> he meant to be sweet. <laughs> and yeah, you also made some balloons and stuff for Morph. Yeah, yeah, that was weird and fun. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, we're sat here, by the way, to to set the mood uh, for our romantic, uh, well, romance-themed podcast. We're sat here basking in the glow of my very, very unsexy After Effects render that uh, is taking forever. That's nice, though. Thank you. Thank you. It's for a preschool show, and I'm just staring at this frog that's been taunting me for the last five days. <laughs> so it's not exactly setting a sexy mood. But yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing the same thing I was doing for the last six months. So there you go. All caught up with Ben. Anywho. And also, oh, that's the other thing that happened. The whole world went to shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we sort of covered that element on uh, on the... The Ben and Steve show. My way of dealing with it is just to completely ignore it and just become, well, as I have always been, politically null void. Just like, ah, oh, okay. Oh, that's, that was going to be my plan as well, because I remembered, like, when Thatcher was in power. Like, I dealt with that fine, because I was four. <laughs> so, you know, if I just kind of bury my head in the sand in the way that I did when I was, I just concentrate on toys and, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there are Twin Peaks pop vinyl Funko toys coming out. That'll distract me for the next six months. <laughs> so there's that. What can you do but focus on the good? And uh, some good news in the animation world. Rather appropriate. In fact, I think it's kind of brought this podcast back uh, a little bit earlier than maybe we suspected we would. Resurrected oh. it like a horny zombie. Yes, very... Mm, exactly that. <laughs> 
Yeah, we think of maybe doing it in the spring or the summer, but turns out one of our favorite people who weirdly should have been like one of the first people we had on if for no other, I guess the only sort of reason was it was just between projects for her. And we've had Signe Bauman, who is the lady we're going to be speaking with later on in this episode. Uh, we've had her on the podcast at least once in the main podcast. And I know I put up a sort of supplemental thing around the same time, like an extended version of that interview, because I felt it got a bit rude for the main squiggly podcast. Now I wouldn't give a shit. We don't really have anyone. To, I, I don't know. I don't know why I was being like cagey at the time. I guess I thought maybe we'd only had a podcast for a, a year or so at that point. People, I think we, maybe you thought because you're doing a podcast about animation, it was a bit racy to have anything sort of sexually charged. But now that you know the audience a bit better and you know who actually listens to it, and it's not twelve year olds. Yeah, that w- there was a, a little bit of like I wonder if doing this series will bring people out of the woodwork in the sense of. Ooh, I don't want to hear about that. And people have actually been very receptive to it. And, I, you know, the reason we're carrying this on is that the first series got such a good reaction. I think that really right now especially, uh, and this again will come up with uh, what Signe's working on, it's, it's more important than ever to find as many sort of art forms as possible to channel these sort of impulses through. I um, think podcasts, including as well books, are like two of the very few expressions of freedom of speech that don't come with like an age range and are freely acceptable to anyone as long as you don't swear yeah that's the only thing that ever gets like picked up in podcasts as far as i'm aware of any of the ones i listen to and i listen to a lot of like horror slash adult slash comedy ones i don't know where along the line it was i guess one of the first decisions but where or why it was determined that we beep out the swear words in the podcast. It is probably safer. Just I think it was because of iTunes. I think it's because... Yeah. If you want to be on iTunes, then you kind of have to. Or maybe it limits something. I don't know. Either that or you have to start every podcast with a warning saying that there is swear words in this podcast, which is a bit gets oh, a bit... Fuck that. Well, my sort of thing with the swearing is, like, people who make a point of being offended by swear words, I've always found that to be a more childish impulse than to just swear. And the reason why it kind of bugs me to beep out the swear words is that that draws attention to it, where otherwise it would just be people talking. So I think, yeah, now is a, it's a troubled time, but we'll, we'll soldier on. I guess I could actually carry on blathering about that, you know, and lose sight of myself. So why don't we steer it toward the actual subject in hand before I go off on a tangent? Um, bring it to our love of Signa, which I think is a mutual love. Yeah, she's she's fantastic. She's I know she's talked to you and helped you in with your book and such on person more personal levels. Oh, my book! Yes, independent animation, developing, producing, and distributing your animated films out now from Taylor and Francis CRPC Press and all good retailers. That book is that the one you meant? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, yes, she did actually. She. Um, this, I have to say, that was a very hair-thinning experience, the whole thing with the book. It, the positives outweigh the negatives, but the, the stressful elements of that came during the end of the production. Not so much the writing of the book itself, but the getting all the ducks in line as far as like image permissions and copyright clearance and you know making sure you can present it the way you want to present it and everyone's okay with it. And Signa, I remember, was the very first person who sent back a signed permissions form for various materials and images and stuff that I used in my book as regards her projects. And there were a lot of those forms sent out. 
No, she's very efficient, which for me is a massive compliment. If I call you efficient, that's basically me telling you I love you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I was so relieved that, you know, the publisher had warned me, this is the thing that, you know, you have to chase everyone up. We do this all the time. This is our job. We know that people just take their time and uh, you really have to stay on top of it. And she immediately sent us back and Bill Plimpton did. You know, and the first sort of like five or six people I'll always sort of feel indebted to because that was that probably prevented an ulcer from happening. So that's one reason to like her a lot. But also, I think if you listen back to the original podcast that she appeared on of our series of podcasts and also the it's not on our SoundCloud, like our main subscription stream. But if you go on to Squiggly and look up Signia Bauman extended interview, I'm pretty sure it's still up. And that's just a longer version of that same interview. And I remember I recorded the intro for that when I had one of the worst like throat infections of my life. And I sound like Harvey Feierstein in the intro. I was like, ah, this girl, Signe Bauman, she's really talented. <laughs> so that was sort of a, a, a ribald conversation. I guess it was sort of foreshadowing the types of interviews that we do in this series, which have been very candid. And it's been great. It's a whole other area of discussion and... Uh, range of expression i think that we've tapped into that the other series just doesn't do generally speaking uh, also you've interviewed signa but not for us it was for uh what was it for well i interviewed her for the talk i did um because she was a she's always a really good case study for talking about sex and animation so and the wilderness festival yeah the uh lost lectures series okay and i also interviewed her for ideas tap which is now not a thing Uh, good job laura (laughs) and talk to her about sex and animation for that but she's always very up for that i remember the skype conversation and just like as soon as she you know the weird skype tune like yeah that exact thing and then her she's like so let's talk about sex and i was just like okay (laughs) let me just get some paper (laughs) yeah and then she'd be like talking about a flower coming through the cracks it was very good oh my my. (laughs) yes but yeah no she's very candid and very good and very kind and very lovely with it it's it's odd it's not like she's all pervy well i mean she's also bipolar which is a big component of her previous film which wasn't really about sex it had a lot of relationship stuff in it and some really like some of my favorite stories are like psycho stalker stories and there's this one story in the film about this woman in particular i think it's her older cousin maybe i forget exactly if how much of it is fictional or non-fictional but uh, it's an older cousin who decides that her lodger is the man she's going to marry despite his insistence that he's not and that's told very well that's one of my favorite sort of sequences in the film but generally speaking the film rocks in my pockets was more about uh her sort of battle with being bipolar and really presented it in a way that made things a lot clearer to me. I think there's certainly a sequence toward the end where she just out and out puts everything on the table as far as what this depression is, what this sort of blackness is, and how it manifests itself, and how she carries on when it does. And then the rest of the film, or those films sort of leading up to it, there are these. it's basically these sort of examinations of people in her family who seem to carry this same thing as something genetic um, is a sort of conclusion. But in the past, that was all sort of written off as, you know, uh, you know, someone dies, very obviously a suicide, 
but they just took too many pills by accident, that kind of thing. The Rocks in My Pockets title, I believe, if I remember right, refers to her grandmother or great-grandmother who walked into a river with her pockets filled with rocks, and that becomes a sort of symbolic thing throughout the film. And more than anything, just a really impressive feat to have made a feature independently. And that's what the main sort of discussion point in the book is about, is how the hell do you do that? How do you make a feature-length film outside of the constraints or parameters or whatever of the mainstream entertainment industry? Uh, As a protege of Bill Plimpton, uh, you know, she's observed that process happen a few times over. And so, you know, there are some interesting similarities with her approach to animation and the way she tells a story. When you look at Bill Plimpton's feature film work, they're very different tonally in some respects, but you can tell that she's absorbed some of his approach, you know? It was surprising for a feature film for it not to, at no point, really drag. It's It has a slightly odd narrative uh, structure to it, and it has that kind of Eastern European flavour to it where it's, it's not necessarily linear, but it does... There's a central narrative that does come back to it because there's a lot of little smaller stories sort of dotted throughout it, but it you know, they always go back to this more sort of central narrative. But it's kind of interesting because she's come through a teaching of, like, Bill Punton and from a more Western structural system of making films. But it's retained a certain Latvian flavour. Yeah, yeah. So the new film is called My Love Affair with Marriage. This is, I guess, more specifically about uh, love and relationships and sex. The triumvirate on which this very podcast is based... Now, sex is something that she's no stranger to as far as using it as subject matter for animated projects. It's been actually pretty front and centre in a lot of her work. In a sense, it's almost surprising that it's not featured as prominently in Rocks in My Pockets when you consider previous projects like uh, Teat Beat of Sex, which is a series I'm sure we've talked about on this podcast before. It's a series of little one-minute musings slash personal experiences slash condemnations of you know what she personally perceives to be unpleasant sort of male posturing but also sort of strangely touching and some of them are that you can tell you know uh, based on real life experiences and then some that are just very very funny and some about societal attitudes there's one called hair which is probably my favorite one uh, there's one called envy they sort of put me in mind of the um Anna Ginsberg film that we talked about in episode two or three of the first series. Different type of film entirely, in a sense, but they are films that are, A, are short, but they put ideas across very, very well that I think make for quite strong discussion points. Oh, I've always really enjoyed them, and I use them a lot whenever I do talks about sex and animation because they're very short and succinct, and I think you get the point of why they're very good example of what that can do and like you said opening up conversations and I've long believed after you know it's when we first met we sort of bonded over these shorts Mm. and talked about how they would be useful in a kind of therapeutic system like in in couple counseling or something to sort of open up a dialogue about certain issues because they're not super serious, you could have a joke about them. But, you know, if we went back to the old days when you used to have, like, Channel 4 short animations, but they were on at a reasonable time, not, like, 
two yeah, minutes one. past midnight or something yeah. like that, then these would be quite good things to sort of slot between like all those date- reality dating shows to sort of combat them. You know, like that yeah. one that we talked about last year where it's like the, let's look at this person's vagina for 20 minutes and discuss how we don't like pubic hair. Oh yeah, compare that person's but still the other person's but to get to know the real oh, them yeah that was the <laughs> but you know see it's not superficial because we're not talking about their clothes huh i think you're kind of missing the point there someone's misunderstood what vanity means at channel four mm. um well that is the thing like the the actual concerns for social progress and actually carrying on a discourse are really quite minimal it, it, it they really are very very kind of base and shallow when it comes to justifying why these concepts are sort of put on screen and at least the the naked dating show there's kind of no ambiguity about like it's an excuse to get people to take their kid off and sometimes they have these little patronizing animations about the pseudoscience behind why a person has certain physical attractions or certain turnoffs but yeah if you cut those instead of having something like scientific in quote marks exchange that maybe with animated sh- shorts or like minute short okay they'd have to do- be shorter but you know what i mean yeah if they interchange like things like first dates and undateables and stuff like that and they actually put in little arty thought-provoking things because the other problem with all these kind of dating shows they're so a they're not made like they sort of hide under the guise of like oh this is a social experiment it's not a social experiment it's just easy tv which is fine, because everyone enjoys a bit of trash, but don't pretend it's something it isn't. But so yeah, the, the shame of TBD of sex, I, I don't know whether she regards it as such or whether she got sick of it, but it's just that there aren't that many. I think there are like 16, maybe 15. And that's something that could have gone on, I think, indefinitely. There are so many areas that could be discussed in these little sort of bite-sized chunks and maybe discussion points wasn't really a concern maybe it was more a matter of you know be funny and entertaining uh she does also talk about the conception of teat beat of sex in the book it's interesting because it'd be an interesting series to pick up again for a short series but have maybe different animators and different stories telling them but the problem with that is then it sometimes becomes quite explainer video-esque where signy's tone and way of language was always what made it more interesting because it was just some of the things that she preferred or she thought were very different to I think what most people would consider I can't think of an example right now but that's what made it unique is her kind of like this is what I think very unfiltered at times very sort of endearingly like naive Mm. especially like when talking about earlier sexual encounters i particularly like the one where she's talking about masturbation as when she was younger and being told by her mother that it's something disgusting and she shouldn't do it and about like how that led to i guess if this is a true account leading to the breakdown of her first marriage because she got with a guy because she wanted to be able to have sex and be satisfied so she just got with the first guy she could got married he was abusive she left him and her kind of like every one of them ends with like this kind of conclusion and it's like if i'd been able to masturbate wouldn't have been abused by my husband just saying mum yeah and i I always like that (laughs) it's just like very simple (laughs) mentality on how that happened there's probably more at play there but it's quite an interesting that's a great example i think that she really delves deep into 
where she comes from and her own idiosyncrasies. She's insanely honest. It's it's quite unusual to get a female in any world that's that honest about both herself and her mental issue and her family and her sex life. You normally get one or the one of those who isn't actually also like a stand-up comedian and making a living out of doing that. Well, I, which I guess she kind of is, but well, I would I would definitely categorize her as a humorist. And she, the production blog for Rocks in My Pockets, which I hope is still up, that was part production diary, but also as she was making the film, she was exorcising all sorts of stories from her life about relationships and about her struggles with mental health. And the stories of her marriages are wonderful. I think that was the thing that really warmed me to her was just like reading it was like reading a a novel that you didn't want to put down and I thought that that really shone through in Rocks in My Pockets as well her gift for anecdotal storytelling one of the criticisms that was leveled against Rocks in My Pockets and again it's something that she talks about quite a bit is that she chose to do the actual voiceover for the narration but generally speaking for the most part like the stories are told in a very very deft way you know Mm, maybe it's i think what it is is when she's actually doing dialogue but to be a both a freelance director a woman director and to be doing this all on a budget that she's raised herself any sort of slight issues you can see are kind of forgivable and it did very well the the other thing is like great write-ups i think in variety and the new york times uh, squiggly.com, of course, had very uh, very fond things to say about it when it came out. Uh, I think also what's important to mention about her work is not only, like you said, she's a humorist, she's also a female director, which that is quite unique. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. But she's also a documentary maker, really, as well. A lot of her stories, even though part of it is fiction, largely it's about issues it's not fantasy, and it definitely isn't overly happy and made to have a happy ending at the end all the time. And so she's sort of covering a lot of areas of the animation industry, and she's doing it both with a lot of professionalism and succeeding massively with it. The impression I get as she's raising funds now for this new film is that she also wants to bring in more people to perform. She mentions uh, singers and also actors. So perhaps there will be actors doing the uh, voices of the characters. And another thing that you can see in the video, which is quite interesting, she's actually sort of brought in like musical elements, not in the sense of music, but like singing and dancing in a kind of... Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a musical type film. Which is interesting. Yeah, but I find that such a dangerous area to go into because either the songs have to be incredibly catchy and kind of memorable. What are the rules? Exactly. What are the rules? Day, man. It's been a month now. And it's... I can't get it out of my head. Um, or it can kind of come off as a bit tacky. You remember that horrible Orange and Lemon film? Oh, God, yeah. The ant- oh, yeah. <laughs> I know it wasn't in English, so that didn't help it in terms of, like, the catchiness, but... The whole thing was just a mess of everything. Lisa Lemon and Mark Orange. I don't know. It had like this really cool dynamic opening sequence and then like an hour and a half of just what the shit am I watching? And every language except English. 
So they didn't even subtitle it in English? But, like, like, it was one of those things where, like, when you were listening to it, it wasn't in any single language, because it was an opera, it wasn't even a musical, it was an opera. So the opera was in Italian, but the singing, I think, was in it Polish. Like, the well, normal talking. One of the songs was in English, but it was so mumbled, it was very hard to even make out the lyrics. But it was like, oh, wait, no, this one's English now. But that was the only part of the film that was English. It was so confusing. Uh, it was no My Life is a Courgette, I'll tell you that much. Most of the singing film, I'm looking forward to finding out why her marriages did break down, as she says in the video for the Kickstarter, like part of the reason she made the film was to explore why it was that her marriage broke down which I find kind of odd because I find not having been married and divorced and not coming from a family of divorce I've always found that kind of side of things quite interesting because most of the time when someone has broken up in a in a marriage situation it's normally it's one of two things either something really bad went down like someone cheated on someone or abused someone or it just broke down over time but it's weird that she wouldn't know. Or maybe what she means is like she doesn't... She wants to pinpoint the exact point in which it was like, ah, okay, this is doomed. Yeah, I think, I mean, you don't see it coming. You don't expect it. It's going to be a very hard butterfly to catch, mm-hmm. I think. Like, pinning that down, like, and really sort of, like, stripping it down to neuroscience and mythology and that kind of thing. Anyway, so Sydney Badman is raising funds for the new movie, My Love Affair with Marriage. And uh, what an opportune time, I thought, to catch up with her and learn a little bit more about what's going on with it and uh, what you guys can all do to help out if you want to, uh, if it sounds appealing. Shall we hear from Signe Bauman? Yeah! And so it's it's been going on quite a while in terms of, I think I read some, like on the campaign that you took like nearly a year to actually get the script. Yeah, it was uh, more than a year, actually. It was like a year and a half. And Sturgis, uh, he's a theater director and he works as new playwrights. Mm. And so he helped to shape the script because, you know, like a feature format for animators, you know, to is, is kind of problematic. And I mean, meaning, you know, we all work with short form. And when you step into this longer form, uh, you need kind of like a, a person who has insight how to tell this longer story. So uh, Sturgis was uh, 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 crucial to, to bring it there. Hmm. And if I remember right, Sturgis, he also did like voice directing on the last film? Yeah, I did voice directing and, mm-hmm. uh, and some other things. Uh, and we, we took a long time to work on that, but that was also the honing of, of that script too also took place really at the same time that that I was working her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was working me, that's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a, he's a slave driver, I have to say. I mean, you know, and as a person, I'm, I'm just a child. I just want to play and, and, and be free and creative and live in the moment, right? And then he comes in with his whip and says, uh, let's get to work. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Give me five minutes, I want. It's just like rolling the dirt. Yeah, that's... Yeah. But it gets done. Which is a good. I mean, certainly rocks did uh, very well. Um, I was really happy to see that uh, get so many nice write-ups, and there've been a couple of screenings here in the UK. I've been able to go to. It's uh, it's great to see. I mean, as as I'm sure you remember from when I I talked to you when I was doing the book, it's such a kind of intimidating prospect to take on something this big. Like for me, taking on a five-minute film 
is like when am i going to have the time <laughs> you know um so yeah this this stuff i'm i'm always in awe of you know you and bill of course um so yeah no i'm, I'm really glad to see that uh you know there's another one being developed so um yeah. what i thought was great about this is that you've been really doing research into what love and marriage is like psychologically and I'm, I'm quite fascinated by that yeah i uh um you, you know like when you uh kind of uh, go into a theme right and you want to to get to the bottom of it like what is like why like you know why did i divorce like but why i divorced it's like when well, then why did i marry right and, mm. and so you you try to unravel these uh strands of the reasons, you know, and so I thought, well, the, the bottom line of why we love and why we marry is probably, let me look into, onto my brain, you know, like onto the pathways, onto biology, my own biology. So I, I set out to do research and, you know, I am, I'm an animator. Of course, I studied philosophy, so I have some tools, but I, honestly, I am pretty ignorant of science and neuroscience and all these things but I just went in there and with the help of internet you know and they, there is a lot of um, scientific websites that push uh, publish scientific papers and I also subscribe to quite a few uh, uh, listservs like science listservs and mm -hmm. so I got to get uh, like I read a lot of science about how neural pathways form and what are the neural uh, the uh, neurotransmitters and also what makes us like what is that urge to fall in love and mm. uh, so um, so that was very interesting but I also felt that I'm not I'm still not an expert and I felt that my uh, kind of research is unprofessional and I wanted to run it by a professional so I uh, contacted one of the uh, New York University professors Pascal Valish and uh, we met and uh, we had like three sessions uh, over where he we went over the script and discussed these themes and um, I was very happy to hear from him that he was impressed with my research I mean of course I got a lot of things wrong but overall, he said he was very impressed about mm. my research and, and also the way how it was all laid out in the story. So I was very happy. But the thing is that, you know, when you say, oh, this film incorporates science, you know, like immediately uh, an average audience member starts to yawn and say, oh, I, oh, I don't know if I want to see science. Um, it's not, science is actually, in the film, has a dramatic purpose, you know. It kind of accelerates the drama of this character because the main character is kind of squeezed between the pressures of society and the pressures of society are represented by these four singing mythology sirens who, mm. like, like pop singers, they try to lure her into you know, these ideas of what you should be and what you should be doing, and that's the societal pressures. And, uh, and her own biology, it's like, and the biology says, well, you know, you do this and there are consequences to you, to your body. I mean, of course, biology probably is quite flexible to an extent, because whatever you do, you can bounce back, or, you know, from many things you can bounce back. I think that the society in many ways is more or less forgiving. <laughs> you mm. know, they say, if you don't do as I tell you, we can execute you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, or ostracize you and you, you die alone on, a, on the margins of society. So 
you know, so that's an interesting place for the main character to be. And I, so I wanted to explore that. And there's, and the, of course, the, the, the story is based on my personal life. But unlike Crocs, that I was telling very directly about my personal life, like it was me telling it, this story is told from a different kind of, uh, from the first point of view, but it's a little bit more removed from me personally. Mm-hmm. And so it was very hard to find the right voice how to tell this story because there are all these like 30 characters there are 30 characters and each of them comes in with a different voice and pleads their case you know or mm. or or argues or wants something so that that was very hard to find the the, the right approach mm-hmm. so that is why it took so long like when i wrote rocks in my pockets it literally spilled out of me in three weeks and then later on the rewrites the adjustments and kind of like that but the, the basics of it was in three weeks and this one the basics took you know a year so mm. So it was, a very, it's, it was a very hard and tedious process. But in the end, uh, you know, we ran it by some people uh, and uh, who read the script and they said that it was very engaging, entertaining and funny. So we have high hopes. You know, I, if we didn't have hopes for this project, we wouldn't be running mm-hmm. this very ambitious Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> what were some of yeah. the ways the the story idea changed over time as you were developing it? Was it quite different? Like originally? Yeah, we wrote actually a treatment uh, 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 early on, you know, like just before I started to work on it. And recently I revisited the treatment, you know, I looked at it because I thought, oh, the final script is going to be like totally different from treatment because we had so many changes, it was change and change and change. But somehow the treatment is not that far off. I mean, the details change, but the same kind of a story arc of the character's discovery is still there. So that 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 is kind of interesting for me mm. to observe that uh, the story is there, it's just the mm. details change. And from what I sort of could tell from the clip on the campaign, I guess is one of the big sort of differences is we'll actually have musical numbers. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um, uh, the composer for Rocks in My Pocket School made just like mm. amazing score for the film. I, I think that I like, and he was so easy to work with and he has a, such a knack for melody and, uh, and also hardworking. And like he's, he can do funny and he can do emotional. So I, I think he's like one of the best film composers I know. Mm. And I think it's uh, undervalued and underappreciated. <laughs> and uh, he's he's Italian, Christian Sensini. He agreed to write the music, uh, the the songs, and there are about twenty three musical numbers. And not all of them are like developed into full songs, but maybe like full songs. There are like fifteen. But uh, I was interested in this kind of like allure of pop song of mm. allure of a song uh that the song very often lures us into the the social like whatever societal pressures you know like uh, whatever it is society delivers its message through a pop song <laughs> <laughs> and uh so it's kind of like a marketing uh ploy for society you know so that is kind of uh for me i wanted to explore that so there's going to be a lot of music and songs and I'm very, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I really hope we can raise the money for this audio track. <laughs> so, 
and as as I said, uh, we don't really have like a a most amazing plan B. Um, so uh, sometimes when I despair and I have a panic attack, uh, the way to bring myself down from this like jumping off the bridge is uh, I say, well, you know, if I fail, then I just become a janitor in an airport because um, I like big spaces. <laughs> <laughs> And I like people, I mean, I like to see people and I like uh, big spaces. So uh, being janitor in an airport would combine the two. I have a plan C, which is going to Syria and opening animation school there. Uh, but right now it's illegal to go to Syria. I think that that's kind of, it's considered like uh, you can, whatever, it's a war zone and you can go, but uh, at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my plan C. I also know that we have a war zone uh, uh, in our Western front, you know, meaning that uh, the gender wars and also the kind of changing the attitudes of society, you know, mm -hmm. and that is, I'm hoping with the story I'm trying to tell, to add to that conversation, mm. you know, what is that? What is our society and what could it be the best? Um, you know, in one of my researches, and again, I, I probably misinterpret what I read, but uh, in one of my researches, it, you know, when people talk about what are the relationships and what, like, are we married uh, for life or should we marry for life or should we do this or should we do that? And there is, uh, there is a, a neuroscience behind uh, human relationships and, and human organization. First is that we are... Uh, we are uh, we developed we evolved as as a species over many thousands of years uh, by living in small groups you know so our most comfortable circle is 120 people and the also the neuroscience of our bonds uh, is saying that seven years is uh, it's a monogamy for seven years so the the actual the the best way for humans to establish uh, uh, relationships serial monogamy mm -hmm. that every seven years you change a partner and that's what kind of in your neural pathways that is like there's this urge for women and men to change the partner it's not just men you know mm -hmm. but it's every seven years so uh, kind of it's interesting to think about it, how we as a society could 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 maybe incorporate the understanding of our own biology into uh, a society that can make wider amount of people, bigger amount of people more happy, you know? Mm. And then also the homosexuality, you know? I do believe that there is a need and there is a reason why there is, why people are homosexual. And I, and I personally think we should a society should be accepting hmm. and open because it enriches us all, you know, and also because there's a reason. I mean, I'm not going to go into it, but uh, but there is uh, everything that we are. There's a reason, biological reason for it. So, hmm. <laughs> so anyway. In in terms of how the research is like into woven into the film, do you actually sort of present it as like findings or is it more kind of... Oh, like no, it's not. It's not separate. It's in, It's like infused. Cool. It's a, there is a character. As I told you, the, 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 the major, uh, the space uh, that this drama unfolds is between the society 
the pressures of society and the pressures of biology. And the main character, she has to survive between that very unforgiving, like the two pressures, you know. Mm. So the biology is a character. And it's not setting demands per se, right? Like it doesn't have demands. It just kind of like guides or comments on what is going on as the character biologically and how all the actions affect her, the rest of her body mm-hmm. biologically. So, and her actions are, of course, very much determined by societal pressures, her, her ideas about how she could fit in the society. So, so yes, yeah, so biology is part of the narrative uh, seamlessly. There's mm-hmm. no stopping. There is just seamless narrative. I also, like like in Rocks in My Pockets, I guess that's in my from my personality. It's kind of very intense. <laughs> it's like uh, uh, a lot of singing and talking and everything is very intense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the production, it, it looks very aesthetically similar to, to Rocks in terms of, you know, the sets and the animation overlaid. Is it by and large going to be the same sort of process or are there any other sort of new things you're dabbling in? Yeah, no, I, I think that I am very intrigued this three-dimensional, uh, what the three-dimensional backgrounds can do. And uh, I, I want to develop a uh, uh, few steps farther. I think that in rocks uh, it worked very well, but I felt that uh, I didn't really exhaust all the possibilities that this kind of technique can offer. And I'm very excited to start experimenting. And I, I think that we are actually getting better at that the lighting and the movement and all, all everything but uh the this this part uh uh the the film rocks in my pockets and my love affair is marriage they're part of like triptych that i want to make mm-hmm. so the aesthetics kind of have to bind them together mm. if not the narrative necessarily but uh, yeah mm-hmm. do you have an idea of what the third one will be then like what the main theme will be yeah, I don't. I want to kind of uh, advertise it because it, it's all kind of up for change, right? Mm. But I do want to go into the matter of God. <laughs> okay. Just that this is a thing that intrigues me endlessly, and I think I just have to find the right way to approach the subject because it's like so charged. Mm. With his explosiveness, that <laughs> that uh, I'm kind of, I really I can't wait. Uh, but you know, of course, the um, love affair will take next three years, you know, at mm. least. So we are talking about women festivals and women filmmakers, and what is the thing that we actually what is so different from male storytelling? I feel because. Uh, male storytelling often involves like a hero that is heroic and uh, goes and conquers, you know, and women have been brought up in a different way. So it's, you know, you tell a woman's story and there's no, you know, hero that conquers in a, in a very blatant, obvious way, you know. So our heroic deeds are probably a little bit smaller uh, on a smaller scale so uh, maybe that is why people kind of say oh I want to have an adventure you know and an adventure associates with associates with male the hero who does these things you know 
so that's that. My favorite film uh, some time ago was um, the film by a woman film, film director, I forget her name, uh, Vajda, which was about, from Saudi Arabia. It was about a young girl who was like 12. She wanted to have a bicycle. And in Saudi Arabia, you can't, if you're a woman, you can't have a bicycle. You can't be on bicycle. Yeah. And that was her quest she wanted and she was different from she was kind of like tomboy you know and and she was strong and strong-willed like i always wonder how the women who live in this kind of oppressive society where you have to cover up every time when you go on on street i was always wondering how do you navigate the space like private space what is private space and what is public space and how do you navigate these spaces how do you navigate relationships between men and women where it's just segregated completely segregated between genders and how do you navigate your own love life where your husband has several wives like what how, how is that how does that work right and so this film without any stopping narrative was incorporating like telling the story uh, of this young girl, 12-year-old girl, and all my questions were answered. This is how you navigate the space. This is what happens when you are a child and at age 14, you're not any more than that. You cross that line into the segregation. But before that, you're not segregated. And no, there's just like a, such a very interesting cultural insight along with a very heroic story a very, in a small scale. And I really loved that film, but it didn't do any like amazing splash in Oscars or anything. I thought it was the most amazing film in the last like five years. So, anyway, I'll look into. I'd quite like to see that. Sounds yeah, uh, it's called Bajda. It's just cool. really, truly amazing film. Thanks to Sydney Bauman for talking about her new project, My Love Affair with Marriage, and be sure to visit kickstartmarriagefilm.com to learn everything else you need to know about the film, including how you can help raise the funds for it and get some wonderful animation goods from Signa in return. And it's signybauman.com to check out her other work. Uh, she's made some really, really excellent films, if you can track them down, as well as the Teat Beat of Sex series. She made a film called Dentist, which is probably one of my favourites. Birth, which is about giving birth very young. Uh, Natasha, another very sort of sexually charged one. A couple of her earlier films very much sort of inspired by the sex and violence Bill Plimpton films. You can follow her on Twitter at Sydney Animated. Speaking of Twitter, you can follow me on Twitter at Bernal Mitchell, and Laura Beth is at LB Cowley, and Squiggly is at Squiggly, and the website is squiggly.com still. So keep checking us out there. Oh yeah, we're on Instagram at Squiggly Animation, on Facebook, Squiggly Magazine. You know where to find us at this point. So yes, glad to be back. Thanks for uh, checking into the first episode of Series 2 of Intimate Animation. Laura Beth, it was a pleasure as always. I will see you again in Episode 2. Bye-bye! <laughs>